Hello, this is Taboo Winslow Morris, sole owner and founder of Triumphant Athletic Agency, author and podcaster. Let's play ball and win. Thank you for tuning into my podcast, Confronting Galalith, a genuine discussion with and for genuine folk. Our genuine discussion today is the state of the U.S. and global economy. Our guest today is Dr. Anabon Basu of the Sage Policy Group, Inc. Dr. Anabon Basu, chairman and CEO, it says on his website, is a study in contradictions. He has been called an economist with a personality or alternatively, one with a sense of humor. He has twice been recognized as one of Merlin's 50th most influential people. He has also been named one of the Baltimore region's 20 most powerful business leaders. In 2014, Maryland Governor Lori Hogan appointed Dr. Basu as chairman of the Maryland Economic Development Commission from 2014 through 2021. He teaches global strategy at John Hopkins University and serves the chief, serves the chief economics, chief economist function for a number of organizations around the country. He has read every one of Agatha Christie's novels, is an avid fan of John's James Bond, English football, Indian cricket all Baltimore teams and lives with his wife and two two daughters, Kamaya and Kohena. I hope I pronounced them correctly. I met Dr. Bursi many years ago while I was a branch manager at Susquehanna Bank, and he helped me um, with some advice for one of my clients and one for myself when I was getting ready to purchase a home. I want to share an article that I read from the Washington Post on April the 12th, 2022. It states, the inflation surge in the United States picked up speed in March as prices rose 8.5% compared with a year ago. It was the largest annual increase since December 1981 with energy prices spiking because of Russians' war in Ukraine. The White House and Federal Reserve have launched several initiatives to try to corral the rising prices, but higher costs appear to be everywhere, particularly in consumer staples that that most families cannot do without. Gasoline, food, and, and a range of other products have become markedly more expensive, creating economic strains for households and businesses and political problems for the White House and congressional Democrats. The economy is now expected to grow at a slower pace later this year, in part because inflation causes families and businesses to rethink certain purchases and potentially tap the brakes on spending. The inflation data released Tuesday by the Bureau of Labor Statistics show prices rose 1.2% compared with February. Price increases for gas, shelter, and food were the largest contributors to inflation, underscoring how inescapable these cost increases have become. Oh, welcome, Dr. Bosu, to to confronting Galalith. Thank you for joining us today. 
I, my first question for you, Dr. Pursue, I can tell you as a entrepreneur and I have a full-time job, because of inflation rate on food and gas, I actually had to pick up another sidekick. I started driving for Lyft. And um, <laughs> believe me, the gas is kicking my behind, but I needed to subsidize my income because of the higher prices on everything from food. I mean, my, my cost for my groceries a year ago has probably tripled. What I would spend $50 a year ago on is now close to 100 bucks for me. So Dr. Basu, can you tell us, I want you to first tell us a little bit about yourself, more than what you what I shared in your bio, and what what is Sage Group? What do you what do you do? Well, I'm an economist by training. Thank you for having me on the uh, Confronting Goliath uh, podcast. Uh, privileged to be here, but uh, I'm an economist by profession. It's what I do. I, I do economic research, uh, and uh, of course, this has been a particularly interesting period in economic history to do such research. In 2004, I started a company, uh, an economic consultancy known as Sage Policy Group Incorporated. We're in Baltimore, Maryland. We also have an office in Orlando. And um, we, we have 12 people on our team, and that's what I do. We provide economic research for people who are looking for such things, for, for research, for insight. Uh, you know, you and I have had uh, interactions in the past, but I have interactions with dozens of clients on a daily basis, uh, often real estate developers, uh, they might be manufacturers, energy suppliers, government agencies. We do a fair amount of litigation support, meaning we testify at trial on damages and these kinds of things, things that we compute. So that's what we do. And, uh, you know, we have payroll tomorrow, as it turns out. Uh, we think <laughs> we're going to make it. So that gives us another two weeks in operations at least. And so that's uh, that's where we're at. Thank you. What brought you into the industry? Because when I met you, you were you 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 were. I would like to say you were much younger. <laughs> I think we all were. Um, I've been in the industry for a while, so uh, you know I've been an economist now for thirty-one years. Um, uh, I started off uh, consulting while I was still in graduate school, as it turns out. And in my first uh, trip to graduate school, I discovered that I was pretty good in economics. And so I scored the highest in the microeconomic sequence during that two-year program. I scored the highest in the macroeconomic sequence. Uh, they made me the teaching assistant or teaching fellow during the second year of the program for the first year students. Uh, so I was basically the uh, teaching assistant. Uh, and uh, and so I knew that I had some facility with economics. And, uh, and so in 1992, reading the Washington Post. There was an advertisement for an economist position in Baltimore, Maryland, as it turned out. And, uh, you know, I came up uh, I-95, took the 395 exit, got to Conway Street, um, took a left, uh, I guess, on, um, I guess that's a light street, took a right on Charles Street, uh, took a left, uh, but yeah, took a left on Charles Street. And by the time I got to the monument in Baltimore, I said, I'm moving to the city. <laughs> and so I uh, nailed that interview, got that job, have been an economist uh, in Baltimore ever since. And uh, that's how I got into the uh, profession. And like I say, in 2004, we started our business and uh, we've had a very good run. Well, I, I appreciate the advice that you've given me over the years. The U.S. economy is now longer no longer controlled by factors that are just here in the United States of America. We are heavily globally interconnected. 
We have the war in Ukraine. We have COVID pandemic that just don't seem to want to stop. We have inflation and so on. What can you, what suggestions do you have for my listeners to soften the negative impact to their budgets because of all of these moving um, things that are impacting our economy? Well, you said it yourself uh, by reading out from that Washington Post article that some of this inflation uh, is inescapable. Uh, there, you know, one has to eat. Uh, you know, one has to drive if one's commuting to work or driving Lyft or Uber, whatever it happens to be. So you, it's very difficult to avoid high gasoline prices, high food prices. Uh, and, uh, and so, look, some of this inflation is going to affect every household. And by the way, as it turns out, uh, there are different inflation rates for different people. So as it turns out, uh, you know, we, we talk about over the last 12 months through March of 2022, inflation in the society as measured by the Consumer Price Index has been running at 8.5%. Uh, coming into the pandemic, inflation was closer to 2%. Now it's 8.5%. Uh, but some people suffer more from inflation than others. In particular, if, if, if you've got people out there um, where whereby gasoline is a bigger part of their household budget or food is a bigger part of their household budget, their inflation rate will be larger than people who, who you know, who, who don't have gasoline as a as significant part of their budget or, or food. And so what am I trying to say? People with lower incomes, people on fixed incomes like retirees, probably have a higher, uh, sorry, a higher inflation rate than people who are wealthy. And therefore, you know, food is part of their budget. Of course it is for everybody, but not a huge part of their budget, you know? And so it, it's easier for them to avoid some of this inflation. So what I would say is advice, whatever one's income, if you feel the need to postpone purchases, do it. These prices are gonna fall at some point. Gasoline is not always gonna be this expensive. So if you need to drive less in the short term, so if you're thinking of, you know, let's see if we should take that vacation right now to Ocean City uh, and drive, you know, you know, let's say five hours from Cumberland or three hours from Baltimore to Ocean City. If you can wait a couple of months, you might benefit from that. Um, and, uh, you know, if, if, if you know, during the summer, you know, airfares are very high. But my very strong belief is that at some point, jet fuel price will begin to fall and airfares become more competitive. And so to the extent that one can postpone major purchases, probably the best example is automobiles. So right now, as people know, new cars are not especially available because there's been this global computer chip shortage. You mentioned it yourself, that we are globally interconnected. So many of the chips that our auto producers use to control various systems, whether braking systems, other systems in cars come from places like Taiwan and Malaysia. Uh, and those economies have been hit hard by all kinds of things, including, of course, the pandemic. So um, we don't have computer chips. So we don't have enough new cars. What happens? People start looking at used cars. So not coincidentally, used car prices are up 35% over the past year, 35%. <laughs> so if you can avoid buying a car right now, at the end of the day, you'll probably have more selection especially if you're looking for a new car, uh, and you'll face lower prices. So one of the keys to dealing with inflation is hold off. Wait if you can, uh, because these prices will come back down to you and uh, there'll be a more favorable time to purchase some of these big ticket items. Well, you answered my next question because I was going to suggest, I asked, what would you suggest us not to do right now? I can tell you, I was at um, the Infinity dealership in Ellicott City um, last week getting my regular maintenance. 
And I was really surprised that they had no cars except for one inside the showroom. And on the out on the um, out on the out on the um, parking lot, they had four new vehicles. So I asked this. I asked the manager. I said, "Well, I've never seen the showroom this empty. What's going on?" And he remember. He said, "Well, remember the the chip issue?" And I said, "Yeah." He says, "Well, they also had a uh, um, one of their, I guess their main manufacturers burnt down." So they're, they're impacted even by that. And he said to me, I said, well, what if I wanted to come in and buy a new car? How long would it take me to get a new car? He said it's seven months out right now for some of their vehicles and they're not even taking pre-orders. I was like, you mean I can't even pre-order a car if I want it? He was like, no, we're not even taking pre-orders. So I was really surprised at that. Now let's jump into the housing market is what would you su suggest to my listeners if they're at the point where they really want to purchase a home i can tell you when i was looking to um renew my lease or not i looked around and i looked at houses i looked at um the leasing market and i couldn't even find a new apartment to move in in may there was no availability I was talking to one of my clients in the car yesterday and even she said she was looking because she wanted to move to Colombia because she she works in Colombia and she wanted to reduce our commute and she couldn't find too many apartments available that had the amenities she wanted in Colombia in Colombia either and I said I don't understand what's going on we have all these new apartments that have opened up what's going on with the market so can we talk about that we certainly can uh, I, 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 obviously uh housing is a major part of the consumer price index and other metrics of inflation and housing prices have been soaring during the pandemic and it's it surprised many people because you know between february of 2020 which is the month before we shut down the economy to march of 2022 which as of this conversation is the last month which we have data america is still down 1.6 million jobs and typically we think of job growth as the fuel for apartment leasing so when you have significant job creation you get more people looking for apartments because they can afford apartments right whether it's people who just graduated from high school or college they get a job they lease an apartment often um, but we're still down 1.6 million jobs um, uh, economy-wide since the pandemic started to tear through the economy. So, so this is really puzzling. So what has happened here? A couple of things. And I think a lot of this relates to behavioral changes induced by the pandemic. So during the pandemic, you know, a number of things happened. Um, people wanted to more aggressively social distance. Mortgage rates fell to record lows. People started to work from home. They wanted more space for home offices. They started exercising at home. They wanted more room for home gyms. And so we saw this massive push into larger units. Now, a lot of those larger units were homes available for sale. Uh, you know, and, and often what happened was that people moved from center cities, let's say they rented an apartment in a, in a, in a big city, to suburban areas. So we saw that in Baltimore. You know, we saw, you know, many people relocate from Baltimore City to Baltimore County. But you saw this in New York. You saw many people going from New York City and ending up in Connecticut or New Jersey, so on and so forth. So, um, so we've seen that. Uh, and what that did was that quickly 
caused the inventory of unsold homes to dwindle. So when somebody is looking for a home to purchase, they'll notice just like they can't find new cars on the dealer lot, they can't find homes to purchase. Uh, it's very difficult. And of course, those homes that are available to purchase are very expensive because there's so much competition for each home. So what happened with respect to this? So a couple of things. One, the demand for home ownership went up in part because of the pandemic, but also during the years leading up to the pandemic, we didn't build many homes. So you'll remember that back in 2006, the U.S. housing market starts uh, to crumble. By 2007, the economy is in recession. By 2008, we're in the Great Recession. And then the housing market gets weaker, but then it keeps getting weaker even after the recession is over because of an, a lingering foreclosure crisis. A lot of people losing their homes. Home values collapsed. What did builders do in response? They stopped building so many homes. Meanwhile, the millennials are coming of age. So the most common age in America this year is the age of 30. So five years ago, the most common age in America was the age of 25. What do 25 year olds do? Well, lots of nonsense as it turns out, but they might rent an apartment. <laughs> and, and that coincided with the apartment building boom that we saw during the previous decade. But now the most common age is 30. And what do 30 year olds do? Well, still lots of nonsense, but they might purchase a home. And so while these millennials, our largest generation were coming of age, we weren't building many new homes. So guess what? Now we have a shortage of homes. And uh, you know many of them are now, of course, leasing apartments, so on and so forth. We don't have enough apartments either. So what you're seeing is home prices have skyrocketed. Rents are skyrocketing. There's not much selection out there. And uh, it's because we've underinvested in our national housing stock. We don't have enough units. And so we're competing for housing, scarce housing. That's what your friend noticed. You know, couldn't find anything. In, and particularly in fabulous communities like a Columbia, Maryland, or an Ellicott City, Maryland, uh, you know, you know these really high quality of life kinds of places, you know, apartments are even more scarce. So that's what we're dealing with. That's part of the inflation story. And um, it's not going to end anytime soon. Uh, I would say this, that home prices will stop uh, rising so rapidly. That's already happened. And that's because mortgage rates have taken off. But that means that if fewer people can afford a house because mortgage rates are higher and therefore monthly mortgage payments are much higher than they were, you know, a few months ago, that more people are going to be looking to rent apartments, which is going to keep those rents rising. Well, I I'm, I would like to if if any of the um, builders listen to this this podcast, I am going to put a suggestion out there to the builders. I lived in Houston, Texas for seven years, and um, Houston has a really large population of ranchers. They've invested in ranchers, which is going to help the aging um, American that do not want to go move into a condo or downsize too too small into a smaller apartment because they need everything on one level. They will. They're the ones that's buying up the ranchers down in in Texas and up here in Maryland. You can't find a really nice ranching community where you can purchase a home that you know don't have too much acreage um, for 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 the older Americans that may want to move out of their three-story home or their you know their semi mansion and want to downsize but still want their autonomy and want to be able to live on their own. I suggest that these builders start looking into building some ranchers and I think they need to do that. 
So thank you for elaborating more on what was going on with the housing market because I was perplexed. I I mean, it really stumped me. I renewed my lease because I couldn't find an, a house that I wanted and I couldn't find an apartment that was affordable. So there you go. How long do you think we will be before the U.S. economy will bounce back? Well, along certain dimensions, it's already bounced back. So if you look at the broadest measure of economic activity, which is gross domestic product, our nation's output, by the second quarter of last year, we're now in the second quarter of this year, but by the second quarter of last year, gross domestic product was above its pre-pandemic level. Uh, and you'll note that we had a lot of stimulus poured into this economy. The, the Federal Reserve lowered interest rates and tried to stimulate the economy that way. And so gross domestic product, as I say, a year ago, uh, returned back above uh, its pre-pandemic level or, or, or surged above its pre-pandemic level. But in terms of jobs, as I point out, we're not fully recovered. The, uh, the, the size of the workforce is not fully recovered. The number of jobs supported by the economy is not fully recovered. Uh, the unemployment rate is close to recovering. Uh, so we were at 3.5% unemployment as the pandemic struck the economy down. We're at 3.6% unemployment as of March of 2022. So on certain dimensions, we look pretty good. But uh, we've seen much more, much more progress, much more recovery uh, in output than in jobs, uh, relatively speaking. And so what are employers doing? They're producing more with fewer people. Uh, and uh, and that's you know you know part of the story and, and 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 almost any employer you talk to will say that it's been a very difficult time. I mean, they've had a very difficult time recruiting staff, retaining staff. People talk about the Great Resignation. So again, it depends upon the measure you're looking at. In some ways, we have recovered. In some ways, we're still recovering. But this economy appears poised to continue to recover during the months to come. I'm very worried about 2023 economically. I think the risk of recession is very high a year from now. And we can get into that. But for right this moment, this economy is set to continue to expand. So what do you, before we go to the risk of recession for 2023, what do you think we need to do to create for the entrepreneurs out there? Because I believe with the great resignation, most people left because either they were fed up with what they were doing, they wasn't making enough money, or they didn't get the they just was unhappy or they wanted to stay at home and work remotely because COVID opened their eyes that they could actually do that and be more efficient on their job and more productive. What do you think we need to do as a country to create more jobs for job growth or more entrepreneurship? Because we did lose a lot of small business owners through COVID. I mean, we lost a lot of businesses. Oh, yes. I mean, uh, some measures suggest that uh, business, you know, if you look at businesses owned by people of color, that the death rate for those businesses was in the range of 40 percent mm-hmm. during the pandemic. Right. So um, but if this is kind of cross ethnic and racial and other lines, I mean, we've suffered a lot of small business loss. There's no question about that. Uh, at the same time, very large businesses uh, like Amazon, for instance, have grown tremendously. Mm-hmm. Right. And and during parts of the pandemic, at least companies like Zoom and DocuSign and Peloton and many others also boomed economically and became very large companies. So um, it, it's been a mixed bag. So your question is, what do we need to do? We need to do so much. Uh, where to begin? <laughs> I mean, I, I think a lot of what has to be done has to be done actually not at the national level, but at the local level. OK, so I'll give you an example. There are certain economies out there. that are just booming. OK, Tampa, Florida. Atlanta, Georgia, Austin, Texas, Nashville, Tennessee, 
Phoenix, Arizona, Boise, Idaho, Denver, Colorado. And what I noticed about each of these communities is that they have very business-friendly policies. Hmm. They appreciate what businesses deliver to their community. And as I say to many people, business is a force multiplier for government. Business, if business, if the business community is successful, it solves a lot of government's problems in many ways. How? It provides jobs. If people have jobs and an income, they don't need government support, at least not as much. Um, it uh, it provides meaning in people's lives. A lot of us take meaning from our work, whether we're entrepreneurs or not. We take meaning from our work. That's important in terms of psychological satisfaction. Uh, it uh, acts, expands the tax base, which gives government more resources to invest in education. So the next generation of workers, for instance, but also in public safety, and public parks and recreation and other quality of life amenities. So successful business, successful enterprise is a force multiplier for government. But in many of our communities around the country, I find that policymakers adopt an, a distinctly anti-business approach. <laughs> they almost view business as the enemy. That business is selfish. Business has all the money. You know, that's why we have to have minimum wages because, you know, businesses should be doing this, but they're exploiting the workers. And I'm not saying that that's not true in certain instances. Please don't get me wrong. But the notion is that businesses, that business in some sense, um, these people need to be regulated, monitored, forced <laughs> into doing certain things. And in some communities, what happens is that the legislators are so aggressive, they drive business away. Uh, and I think that in many of the communities, particularly in the northern United States, Illinois, New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, Maryland, California, which of course is both north and south, is so big, um, <laughs> that, um, that, that, uh, that, that that's one of the reasons that you don't have more growth in those communities is because there is often an anti-business approach to legislating. And, I and also these places, however, like a Maryland, for instance, home to Johns Hopkins and the U.S. Naval Academy, obviously adjacent to the federal government and home to agencies like the National Institutes of Health and the Food and Drug Administration and, and, and many others um, are, are potentially commercial dynamos, but they don't fulfill their potential for innovation entrepreneurship because the businesses are not sufficiently pro-entrepreneur. Hmm. So I think one of the things that we could do as a country is that in some of these communities, we could be more pro-entrepreneur. Please do not get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that Florida legislators are perfect. I know they're not, whether in <laughs> respect to voting or other matters. And the same thing is true for Texas legislators. Same thing is true for Georgia legislators. Now, I understand that. But in terms of business, they seem to appreciate that business matters, that commercial success is a good thing, and that it, it, it should be nurtured, uh, while other communities just don't seem to get that message. Thank you. I, I'd, I'd agree with that. Now, let's go back to how you feel about the 2023 year, um, because I you're the first person I've heard say that you were a little nervous about the recession in 2023. Because that yeah. will help people make wise decisions. Well, I think just people need to be prepared that this economy, which has been in fairly brisk recovery, um, since roughly May of 2020 might sputter a bit going forward. So what's happening here? Number one, inflation is draining household balance sheets. Yes, it is. So there was a period during which households had amassed a significant amount of savings. I mean, they couldn't take vacations. They, 
you know, couldn't get to the gym that, you know, so they were not spending as much money on certain categories and they were amassing savings because at the same time, of course, uh, across the Trump and Biden administrations, there were major stimulus packages, many of which offered direct payments to households. So uh, on March 27th of 2020, Donald Trump, the then president signs uh, the CARES Act, the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security uh, Act of 2020 that offered uh, direct payments to households. That was also your Paycheck Protection Program, direct support to business. That there was actually more direct support to business offered by an April 24th of 2020 package, about a half trillion dollar package. The first package, the CARES Act, was 2.2 to 2.3 trillion dollars. Then in late 2020, on December 27th, the president uh, at that time, Donald Trump, signs the Consolidated Appropriations Act. That's around a 900 billion dollar package. Uh, that offers more payments to households. And then on March 11th of 2021, the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021, signed by President Joe Biden, and that offers drug payments to households. So for a time there, households found that they couldn't spend money the way they used to because they couldn't go out as much. They couldn't take vacations, that kind of thing. And they're getting payments from governments. Uh, and so a lot of savings were amassed. And so we've seen a lot of growth in retail spending in, uh, over the past year, as, as a lot of that money has been put into the economy. But now inflation is tearing through the economy, impacting household balance sheets, depleting savings. More Americans are indicating that they're living, again, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, and inflation's not going away anytime soon. So the situation is set to deteriorate. And at the same time that that's happening, the Federal Reserve, our central bank, is raising interest rates, increasing the cost of capital, increasing the cost of borrowing to try to deal with this inflationary issue that they waited too long to deal with, frankly. And so, so now you have the Federal Reserve doing what they have often done since the early 1980s, try to engineer a soft landing. What does that mean? The economy is overheating. There's significant inflation. They want to slow down the economy, but not so much that we end up in a recession. Now we've had eight rate tightening cycles since the early 1980s periods during which the Federal Reserve was actually increasing interest rates. Eight cycles during which the Federal Reserve was increasing interest rates. Six of those ended in recession. Even the Baltimore Orioles have a better record than that. So, <laughs> um, so, so now, granted, on, on some of those occasions, it was not interest rate increases that caused the recession. And the best example of that is COVID-19 itself. Now, you know, so, but, but nonetheless, it has not been a great track record of engineering a soft landing. And so if you've got a, an economy that's weakening while the Federal Reserve is increasing interest rates, that portends, I think, some soft uh, economic performance in 2023. And ultimately, the risk of recession has been rising. Wow. Well, <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, well, I, I thought I would purchase a home in 2023. I'm not sure if that's going to happen now. But anywho, let's move on to the next question. This one is a good one. With student loans coming due for many Americans in May, what suggestions would you recommend to graduates for, for May not, that who may not have the funds for future college students and for financing their college tuition? And what suggestions do you have for those of us that have this student debt? Well, look, I mean, uh, for those, there's just two separate questions here. So on the one hand, you've got a lot of folks out there who have already amassed that student debt. Mm -hmm. And one hopes that they obtain that degree, right? Because we have a lot, millions of people, as it turns out, who amassed student debt, never got that degree. Hmm. Uh, 
Uh, and that's the worst quadrant to be in, right? Have the student debt, don't have the, the credential. Um, and so what can I tell you? I mean, I, I think one has to be pragmatic here. Uh, you know, one can, you know, of course, advocate for forgiveness. So I suppose there's a lot of that going around right now. But, you know, the best thing to do is, I think, pay what you can. Work with the lender uh, because, you know, you've, one has taken on this obligation. I, I'm one of these folks who thinks that, you know, if you've taken on an obligation, you've said, if, if you lend this money to me, I will pay it back. Right? That's a student loan. It's like any loan. Any loan you take out, it's if you lend this money to me, for whatever purpose it happens to be, whether it's for an education or an automobile or a house, whatever, I obligate myself to pay that back. And that seems like a reasonable thing. Now, in many cases, people who've taken on student debt look back and say, that was not a good decision. I didn't get what I bargained for. Uh, that may be, but the obligation was made and should be therefore discharged. That's, again, my view. I'm not moralizing here. I'm just simply suggesting this is sort of a contractual obligation. So you pay what you can, and, and if, of course, if you can, you pay what you owe. And that, that, I, what else can I tell you? I think, it, you know, and if that means that one has to also drive Lyft or Uber <laughs> or do or, or work an additional shift every once in a while or find an employer who will offer them the wages that allow them to pay back their student debt on a timely basis. And that's what one has to do uh, or should do, in my view. Uh, again, not trying to be you know, moralized. And I get that a lot of people look back and say, I wish I had not done that. Which takes me to the second part of that question, which is, what about people who have not taken on debt yet, but are thinking about their educational pathway, their career pathway, how should they approach the situation? And I think the answer is pretty clear based on what a previous generation has gone through uh, with respect to student debt, which is take on only as much debt as you can afford to pay back. And so one has to take into consideration many things. So for instance, uh, if one is majoring in engineering, uh, Engineers tend to make a lot of money upon graduation. You know, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, other forms of engineering, they, they make a fair amount of money. What does that mean, therefore? If you're going to major in engineering, let's say at Purdue, or the University of Illinois, or the University of Maryland, or wherever it happens to be, Carnegie Mellon, you probably can take on a fair amount of debt and be assured that you're going to be able to pay that back on a timely basis. You're going to be an engineer. You see what I'm saying? Um, but if you say, look, I want to be a, a, a fine arts major, I, I want to major in music, I want to, what, that's fine too, do not get me wrong, these are very useful human endeavors, but one has to look at the income attached, at least on average, to professions related to those majors. And one has to therefore ask the question, how much debt should I be willing to take on? Uh, how, much financial, uh, how much financial aid do I need, if any? Uh, to make this work for myself. Um, and then they should set that limit in terms of the amount of debt they're willing to take on, which of course limits the schools they're likely to be able to attend, which is frustrating for many people and frustrating for many families, by the way. I, and there are many parents out there who took on a lot of debt. Why? Because they didn't want their child to have to make a tough choice of, well, I want to go to this school, but it costs very much uh, to hmm. go to that school. Uh, I, I also got to this school, it costs much less, but I don't want to go to this school as much as I want to go to this more expensive school. And that's not surprising that situation would, would emerge. And so parents, in many cases, have obligated themselves. And many parents are still paying back those student loans, though they're now in their 70s. Hmm. Right. So it, it, one has to be very cautious is all I'm saying, taking on debt and think about the educational pathway. And, and one, of the, one of the very beautiful things about America is that we have just so many great schools in every state. And and so, uh, you know, it, 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 look, 
one might want to go to a Johns Hopkins. But the fact of the matter is, the University of Maryland and UMBC and Salisbury and Towson and Bowie State and Morgan State are really good schools. And so uh, you're going to do just fine going to those schools. And as, as with most things, you get out what you put in. So um, in terms of effort. So in any case, that's my answer. You know, you have to be careful. I think the next generation has to be much more cautious about taking on debt than the previous generation because many people in the previous generation, the millennials got burned. Yes, we did. I can honestly say in my full-time job at CCBC, the Community College of Baltimore County, as a program coordinator, I work with um, upward bound students, getting them college ready. And this year, for the first time, I've actually saw this graduating cohort did not get the scholarship offers that we thought they were going to get. Um, I was a little disappointed, honestly, because my students were all these students. I have, I have some pretty high flyers where their GPAs are close to a 4.0, and they know they've done what we expect them to do in education is to have a great GPA, and you think you're going to get rewarded with scholarship money if you have that great GPA, and. Um, I was really surprised out of this cohort that I have right now of how many of them did not get the scholarship offers that we thought they would, um, even being some low income. And um, I was really surprised. So I've had to have this tough conversation about student debt um, and how much they are willing to take on to go to the school that they want to go to, um, to major in the major they want to go to, and to have the career outcome that they want. The piece that you just tied for me with helping my students as I advise them is to not only look at the school, but look at your outcome, your, your, your income potential when you graduate. Now we do do a career assessment for our students. And I've actually um, had one with one student and we went through, I had her go through job, um, job, um, job postings to see what, what, what uh, major she would need to be in in order to get the jobs that she wanted. But I didn't have her look at how much those jobs pay. That is the piece that you just connected for me to be a better advisor for my students when I'm advising them on their college decision. And I thank you for that because that did not click until you just said what you just said to me. So I'm, I, I'm hoping the listeners are really um, taking, on and taking on the wisdom that you're pouring into us. And I thank you for that. I would like you to be able to say how my listeners can con- contact you if they want you to come in and speak. Um, how do they? How do they reach out to um, Dr. Basu? Well, I have a newsletter, basu.substack.com. Um, so you know they can subscribe to the free service. For instance, there is a paid service. As it turns out, we have several thousand subscribers. Now we only started about three months ago. But it's been very popular. Uh, we have a few features that we offer. For instance, we have a week in review feature where we talk about all the data releases for the past week, and or at least the major data releases. And, and 
uh, and talk about what the implications are for the economic outlook. Uh, we, we talk about the, jo- the jobs report that comes out the first Friday of every month, typically on the first Friday of every month, that kind of thing. And so, uh, and we try to write in a humorous fashion, you know, um, <laughs> lots of pop culture references, that kind of thing. So that's one. Uh, my uh, office phone number is 410-522-7243, 410-522-7243. You'll probably get my assistant, uh, Julia Hamilton, as it turns out. And, and uh she, uh, you know, she's the one who schedules uh, my speaking engagements. And so, um, you know, happy to address various audiences. And thank you for, um, you know, the praise with respect to my previous answer. But I neglected to point out that another pathway, of course, does not involve a four-year college. That, you know, much success can be garnered from entering an apprenticeship program after high school or attending a school like CCBC or Anne Arundel Community College which are two of our best two-year colleges uh, or uh, community colleges in our state and in, probably in the nation. Um, and, uh, and, you know, picking up an associate's degree and then picking up work experience or taking that associate's degree and then, and tra- you know, moving into a four-year institution like the University of Baltimore or other places to finish up a four-year degree. And that's a really economical way to do that. So, you know, you have your four-year college degree, but the first two years, um, generally less expensive, but also very productive, uh, spent at a two-year college. So. Lots of pathways. America is still the land of opportunity. We have, as of February of this year, 11.3 million available unfilled job openings. 11.3 million. We have right now 1.8 job openings for every unemployed worker in America. So workers right now, human capital, skilled people are very much in demand right now. And uh, and so, you know, like, like I said, there's various pathways to success. And unfortunately, many of our young people, certainly the millennials, were told, look, the only pathway to success is a four-year college degree. That's it, period, end of story. That's it. It's just not true, as it turns out. Uh, and uh, the, for many people, a four-year college degree is a pathway to success. Please don't get me wrong. But it's not for everybody. Uh, and there are other pathways for various people. And that's you know what you get when you have an economy over the size of $20 trillion. You get a very diverse economy and a lot of ways to success. And, uh, and so p- people just need to be mindful of that. Well, I thank you, Dr. Basu, for coming on to my podcast today. Listeners, become a listener supporter. Tune in the next time to listen to a genuine discussion with and for genuine folk. Let's play ball and win. This is Taboo Winslow Morris, sole owner and founder of Triumphant Athletic Agency, author and podcasters. You have an awesome day. And thank you once again, Dr. Basu. This has been, I mean, this has been awesome. You have really opened up my eyes and I know my listeners got a lot of um, nuggets to to help them make good decisions, wise economic decisions going forward. Thank you once again. Thank you. Everyone have a great day.